also, uh, Joe mentioned that uh, Chris is, is out of town today. And uh, you always know how much you need someone in your life when they're gone and they're out of town or they're not available to you. Chris usually puts my sermon slides in to the, to the computer back there. And I got here and um, got busy talking to people and realized about halfway through our service that my sermon slides are not in the computer. So you're going to be a little short on, you know, on, on slides this morning. That's all you're going to get. But... Um, if it just ruined your experience with the sermon, you know, let me know. I'll email you the slides that I worked to create for this sermon. But that is going to mean that you're going to need your Bible or your phone to read along. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8 this morning uh, together in just a minute and uh, reading from a couple of stories that we'll find there. Um, but as you turn there, I want to ask if you would just to bow with me again as we begin our time in God's Word. I want to say a quick prayer. Father God, King of the universe, we thank you for this day and for the opportunity that we have to gather as your people, uh, connected with each other and with you and with believers around the world who are gathering uh, this day to remember Christ and to celebrate his life and his death and the hope that we have because of his resurrection. Uh, we ask, Father, now that if you, as we gather around your word, that you, if you would speak to our hearts, please, God. That you'll open our ears and our eyes so that we can hear and see what you want us to hear and see. So that we might live in the way that you've called us to live as your people. We thank you for Jesus and for the way that we see through his life and his coming into the world um, that your kingdom has come and your will is being done through him. And we thank you for that, uh, that opportunity that we have to study and to know him not just as an idea or a person in a book, but as a real person who still continues to live to this very day. We thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, if you missed last week or this is your first time with us today, we kicked off last week a sermon series that's going to lead us up to Easter Sunday at the end of March uh, that we're calling Kingdom Come. And in this series, we're just really spending time in three chapters, Matthew 8, Matthew 9 and Matthew chapter 10. And last week I pointed out that the very first words in Matthew chapter 8 are these words. When Jesus came down from the mountainsides, from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And I made the observation that Matthew chapter 8 is the first words right after the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Matthew wants us to know as he says that, that Jesus is coming down from the mountain... He, he wants us to know that what we're going to witness in the next few stories, the next few chapters in Matthew 8, 9, and 10 comes right after that Sermon on the Mount. And, and we know that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught about the, the kingdom of God, and now he is showing us the power of the kingdom of God. You're going to get to, you get to see in the stories that we're studying in this series the way that the kingdom of God looks in real life, in flesh and bone, when it comes into the world and into people's lives. And there's, there's another subtle sort of illusion that, that, that Matthew is hoping that you'll catch uh, when he uses this phrase that Jesus came down from the mountain. He wants to tell you specifically that this is happening right after the Sermon on the Mount, 
But there's also another little subtle illusion that he's hoping that you'll catch when you read this. Certainly his audience, original audience, was primarily Jewish, and they would have caught this as Matthew sort of had kind of a wordplay going on here. In Exodus chapter 34 and 29, you don't need to look there, but we're told that Moses came down from the mountain, came down from Mount Sinai. And if you remember that story at all, he came down from the mountain with two stone tablets of the covenant. And this was, in Exodus 34, was the second time that Moses had come down from the mountain. The first time, you may remember in this story, he comes down and he sees the Israelites and they're building a golden statue to worship because Moses had been gone for so long. And Moses throws the tablets down and they break and so on the ground. And so this is, in Exodus 34, the second time that Moses comes down the mountain with two tablets and he's shining in this story from being in God's presence and it scares the people. And so Matthew is very Jewish, and he wants you to know his story, the, the story of his people. And so he is intentional all throughout his gospel. There are other places, but this is just one of the places where he's very intentional uh, with his language and how he's describing what, what is happening in the life of Jesus. And so now he says Jesus comes down from the mountain, and he's hoping that his original audience would have remembered, oh, I know another time in our story when somebody else came down from the mountain and gave something to the people. Except in this story, as Jesus comes down, to the, down the mountain, there are no tablets. There are no tablets containing the law, right? The, the, those Ten Commandments contain the law. And there are no tablets that Jesus carries as he comes down the mountain because he is the law. He is the law with skin on. And so this morning, we're going to continue our journey through Matthew 8, 9, and 10, watching and observing and paying attention to the ways that Jesus fulfills the law, becomes the law, fulfills it in his life and in his ministry. And so we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. This is what Matthew records. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law, some of your translations may say a scribe, came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. I want to stop here for just a minute and talk about this, and then we're going to keep going with the rest of uh, Matthew chapter 8. But there, we, we notice in the beginning here that there are some crowds that are taking notice of Jesus. They're beginning to see that Jesus is different. They're notices, noticing some things about Jesus' life that seem unique, and they're, they're paying attention, and they want to participate in this. And this is so we get a little glimpse of what it would have looked like if you weren't one of Jesus' earliest disciples, but you're noticing all the things that Jesus is doing, and you walk up to Jesus to sort of engage him in conversation about this, and you're saying, hey, I want to follow you. Matthew tells us that the first one to approach Jesus is a teacher of the law or a scribe. A scribe's life would have been dedicated to writing and preserving the scrolls from the Torah, from the Old Testament. Sometimes they're referred to in certain translations as lawyers, which is why here NIV says a teacher of the law. But it's not a lawyer in the way that you and I tend to think about lawyers like they're prosecuting people and things like that. It's that they knew the law intimately. This was their job. Their life's work was to, to write and to transcribe and to make sure that these, 
These ancient documents that were even ancient then were, were preserved for future generations so that the story of God could continue to be told. So this teacher of the law, it's interesting, right? He's a part of this group of people who often oppose Jesus, but he's paying attention to Jesus's life and his ministry, right? He's seeing all the things that Jesus is doing, and he's, intri- he's intrigued, he's interested, and he goes to Jesus. And I'm pointing out his profession because I think that alone is significant. This is not a common person. This is not someone that would have been a fisherman like the disciples. This is somebody who, who is a little bit higher up in Israel's kind of elite class and would have known the culture and known kind of the political situation, would have had influence. And he's been around people who who know the law, and he is one person who knows the law. And so this teacher of the law goes up to Jesus, and he identifies Jesus as a teacher. And so even his, the name that he gives to Jesus is significant because it says he can't deny that Jesus knows his stuff, right? That Jesus is also intimately aware of and attentive to the law. And he's interested as he's been paying attention. I, I imagine him paying attention as he's writing things from the Old Testament. He's transcribing things in, onto new scrolls so they can be preserved. He's also seeing Jesus' life and ministry, and he's paying attention to this, and he seems interested. He begins to notice maybe something in his heart that, he, that stirs, and he thinks, this, this guy is different. Maybe this guy is the Messiah. I've heard some rumblings that other people think that he might be the Messiah. Maybe I should follow him too. And so he goes and he says to Jesus, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus responds, I don't have a place. I don't have a single place. I'm a roaming preacher at this point in my ministry. I don't have one place that I lay my head every night. And then right after this story, Matthew tells us about another another person that wants to be a disciple that comes and approaches Jesus. And he says, I also want to follow you, Jesus. But first, I need to go and bury my father. Now, I need to clarify what he means by this because when we hear this, we think, well, that seems like an honest request. A significant thing has happened in somebody's life, and they want to go and take care of that thing first. But in Jesus' day, when someone said that they need to go and bury their father or mother or cousin or sister, it didn't necessarily mean that their father was already dead. He may have been getting older. He may have just, it may have just meant that he was sick. So the man is essentially saying, right, there's a chance that my, his father might have been dead, but it also mean, could, could mean that there's a chance that my father looks like he's going to pass away any day now. And while that may not seem like a significant difference, I think that the point that I'm wanting to make is that it could have meant a couple of things. But really, either way, Jesus' response, I think, might be, in our, especially in our world, sort of 21st century, where we're, we love, you know, family is everything, family means the world to all of us, Jesus' response might be one of the most shocking things that Jesus says. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. Right? Again, for most of us, family matters more than anything. And what Jesus wanted this man to consider is what if his father improved or rallied or got better altogether? What then? Right? Would the man still follow then? And it seems harsh. I, I think I'm, I'm sympathetic toward this man. Right? It seems harsh, but when you, you, know, when you see Jesus interacting with this guy, you wonder why Jesus comes across the way he does the reason that I think that Jesus says what he says is that I think he senses that this man is using his father's situation as a way to postpone his, follow, his decision to follow. The man wanted to keep his options open, you might say it that way. 
right? He wanted Jesus to let, let him kind of go and make the decision and let him keep his options open about, I'll follow, but I'll also still kind of be able to keep this other part of my life. So when, what Jesus says is essentially this, whatever else you are thinking about doing, this comes first. And again, I, I want us to just sort of let, let the significance and the weight of that sit with us for a minute this morning. Because this is not the only time that Jesus is going to say something hard in the text that we're going to read together this morning. I think it's incredibly relevant to our life today. What does following Jesus look like for us today? And the question that I can't kind of begin to think about as I was studying this passage was, am I all in with Jesus or am I sort of in with Jesus? Am I sort of following Jesus but still kind of wanting to keep my options open? Right? This person says with their mouth that they want to be a follower, a disciple, and they stood in the presence of life, but they're still captured by death by wanting to bury the dead, which seems like a really good thing to want to do, right? But the question is, how many good things keep us from fully surrendering to Jesus? How many good things that we all do keep us from fully surrendering to Jesus? And I want to invite you to pay attention to that question. In what areas of your life do you sense that other things are in the way of you following fully with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? What commitments are more consuming of your time, of your schedule, of your resources, of your life than the commitment to follow Jesus? Right, this is what I think is part of this, this, this story is asking us to consider, or it's part of what this story is asking us to consider. Are we all in or are we sort of in? Are we still kind of keeping one foot out, hoping that we can kind of keep our options open? What, what's holding us back from fully surrendering? A little later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 16, Jesus offers this command. He says, take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. And I think you hear some of that language from Matthew 16 in, in this conversation in Matthew chapter 8 with these these, this person, these two people and Jesus who are kind of considering following Jesus. They claim to want to follow Jesus. And I think Jesus comes across as firm in his response because I think he understands that if we are going to follow him, that there might be something in our life that we need to let go of first. If I had slides, this would be the first point of the sermon that I would want you to be sure and take home. If we're going to follow Jesus, there might be something in our life that we need to let go of first. Let me say it a different way. There might be something that we need to die to first before we can fully follow. Something that needs to die in us or in our life in order to surrender fully to Jesus' way. This is true for individuals, for each of us individually. It's also true for the church, for a, a group of people. What do we as a church need to die to, to let go of in order to more fully follow Jesus? Something in our past, something that happened in our lives, something that happened maybe in a relationship with somebody else. As a church, it could be the same thing, something that happened in our past, something that happened in our history as a church or our history with individuals in the church. <coughs> 
What we know is that the resurrection is what waits on the other side of death. But you can't experience resurrection without something dying first. And so the question that I want us to consider as we think about this part of Matthew chapter 8 is, is there something that we need to let go of? Is there something in us or in our life that needs to die in order for us to fully surrender our life to Jesus? You might have to give up something, but you're going to gain more in return if you do. And so what might we need to surrender in order to follow Jesus more fully? Let's keep reading. In, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, Matthew says, tells us the next thing that happened. So they've, they've come down from the mountain. The crowd has come around. Jesus has at, you know, said to the disciples, let's, let's go to the, onto the lake. But before they get onto the lake, he has these two conversations with these two people he want to follow. But now in verse 23, he finally gets into the boat. Then he got into the boat. And his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves. And it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. <clears throat> After his encounter with these two curious people about possibly being disciples, Jesus retreats to this boat and gets away for a minute. And pretty soon him and the disciples find themselves caught up in a storm. The waves are sweeping over the top of the boat, Matthew tells us. So they're wet. They're feeling overwhelmed. And in that moment when they're wet and they're feeling overwhelmed and they're a bit scared, they look and Jesus is sleeping. You remember anywhere else in the Bible or anyone else in the Bible that was sleeping during a storm? Jonah is the person that I think of. And in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah is sleeping below the deck while a storm rain, rages outside. And the captain of the ship in that story goes down and says, how can you sleep? Call on your God and maybe he can save us. But here, Jesus is the one sleeping. And the disciples are the ones that go to him and say, how can you sleep? Save us before we drown. And Jesus rebukes them, not because they woke him from a good nap. I know we all, I sleep a lot better when it's raining outside, right? So I imagine Jesus was like deep in his REM sleep. He was really having a great nap. Not, he, he didn't rebuke them because they had, he was having a great nap. He rebukes them because they were afraid. Why are you so afraid, he asks. And the word that we read translated in, in the NIV, said that it has them saying, we're going to drown but the word really is not drown, it's perish, right? They're saying, we're going to die, Jesus, save us. They're concerned about their life. Now, it's interesting, if you noticed in verse 25, they've just called him Lord. They say, Lord, save us. And I think part of Jesus' response to them <clears throat> is that they really don't understand what Lord means, right? If Jesus is Lord, that means he rules over everything, and that includes the situation that they're currently in. And so he rebukes them because their faith is little. The disadvantage of us having to kind of break a sermon series up into sections is that you can't kind of see the continuity with which Matthew wrote his gospel story. But you remember, if you were here last week, if not, you'll have to go back and read this story. Last week, we looked at the story of a centurion soldier, a guy who is not even a part of Israel. 
who comes to Jesus because he has a servant at home that's paralyzed, that's in need of care. And so he goes to Jesus and asks him to heal this servant and says, Jesus says to him, do you want me to come to your house? I'll come to your house. And the, and the man says, no, I, I know you, I know that you have a, you're a person with authority and you have people who serve under you. I too am a person who, who has authority and I have people who serve under me. And I know you don't even need to come to my house anyway. You can just say the word and I know that my servant will be healed. And Jesus looks at this man and I imagine him looking at the disciples and he says, now this man has great faith. In fact, I haven't found anybody in Israel that has the faith like this man has. This guy is a guy who actually perceives who I am, who actually understands who I am. And now, with that story in the background, Matthew is hoping that we recall that story as we hear the story about the storm. Because while the centurion had great faith, he says that the disciples have little faith, which it turns out, turns out to be a regular ongoing thing for the disciples, right? In Matthew 14, just a couple of chapters later, Peter is going to be rebuked for having little faith. But you need to remember, you know, we got to remember that the disciples at this point, they already witnessed Jesus healing people, casting out demons, which had to have been an unbelievable thing to witness. They've, they've seen Jesus touching a leper. You would think at this point in the story that they have enormous faith that God can do anything that God wants to do. And yet here they are in the middle of a big storm with little faith. They come to Jesus, which is the right instinct, right? We know that Jesus can help us, but then they tell Jesus what's about to happen. We're going to drown. We're going to perish. We're going to die. Save us, which is what shows their little faith. And again, in a way similar to the, the two people who come to Jesus with what appear on the outside, appear at first glance like maybe legitimate reasons to not initially follow him, I am also sympathetic to the disciples in this situation. We kind of give the disciples a hard time, you know, on this side of history. <clears throat> we kind of look at this and go, you know, I mean, if I was in the boat, I probably would have had better, you know, stronger faith than that. But the reality is we probably wouldn't have. We would have struggled just like them. So I'm sympathetic to them. I get it. They are in a storm. There are waves sweeping over the boat, Matthew tells us. It probably felt like death or it probably felt like the potential for death. But look what happens next. Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the winds and the waves. And Matthew says, and everything became calm. Unlike Jonah's story, no one had to be thrown overboard in this story. In this story, the power came from inside the boat. And there's also a connection to another Old Testament story in this story, another time when Yahweh demonstrated power over water in the Exodus. And if you remember that story also in the Exodus, when Israel comes to the sea and they don't know what to do, that God in the, through, through Moses with power pushes the sea back on the right and on the left so that people can walk through on dry ground. And in that story, they rem Israel remembered for years, for generations, right? Matthew would have been told that story as a little boy, and he knew that God had that kind of power. And now he's witnessing Jesus with the same kind of power. In fact, Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9 says this. It's a, it's a psalm, it's a song that Israel would have sung, which actually retells briefly a portion of the Exodus story. It says this, Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are, my, are mighty and, in, and you're faithful, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, 
you steal them. Matthew is writing this story, remember his gospel story, after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's a Jew and he's convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And he wants you to be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he's hoping as you hear this story that you'll remember, oh, God's done things like this before. This isn't the first time that God's shown his power over the winds and the waves. But now Jesus is in the role of Yahweh because Jesus is God. And Jesus is the one that displays power over the winds and the waves. And the disciples, Matthew says, are amazed is what the NIV translation. The word amazed actually I think is a little bit understated. I think they are blown away. I think they don't have a category for what just happened, right? They're like scratching their heads trying to figure out what exactly they just witnessed. They're dumbfounded. They are not saying, awesome, do it again, Jesus. They're completely blown away. So much so that out loud, and their friend Matthew records them asking out loud, what kind of person, what kind of human is this? He commands the winds and the waves, and they obey him. And this is the point in the story, again, when I think we usually pile on and critique the disciples right? Don't they know who Jesus is? And I forget, I think again, we forget that we have time and space on our side. So it's easy to be like, from our perspective, well, of course Jesus did that. They had been seeing Jesus do amazing things, but what the disciples learned on this day and in this moment was that the one who they knew had been capable of healing and, and forgiving sinners and casting out demons also has power to command wind and water. And the disciples question. I love the way Matthew tells the story, the disciples question, what kind of person is this? What kind of human is this? It just sort of hangs in the air. There's no answer directly given. In fact, if the story we're going to look at next week, it just goes right to the next story. The story just kind of hangs there. There's no answer directly given to the question. And I think that's partly because Matthew is going to show you in the continuation of his telling of the story what kind of man this is. It's a question that we all, all in your wrestle with, right? In the rest of his gospel story, he's going to keep slowly pulling the curtain back and giving the reader a glimpse into what kind of person this is so that the disciples have a fuller understanding and so that as we continue to study about Jesus, we also have a fuller understanding. And again, in fact, next week, we'll keep exploring in a way this same question with the story that comes right after this. We see another level of who, who this man is. But in the process of not answering the question directly, I think Matthew is also leaving the question for us to answer. What kind of person is this to you? And I think it's related to the question that I asked a moment ago. What is it is, or is there anything that is holding you back from being all in in your pursuit of Jesus, all in from surrendering fully to Jesus. What kind of person is this to you? Does he have the authority over every aspect of your life? Does he have authority over every aspect of your world, of our world? And maybe maybe that question is one we just sit with this week, kind of continue to reflect upon what kind of person is this? He was fully God and he was fully human. And here's the good news from the story. You ready? This is really good news. Jesus we learn from this story can work with a little bit of faith. 
All it takes is a little bit of faith. Jesus will say in another place, if you have a faith the size of a mustard seed, most all of us have seen mustard seeds, they aren't big. So on one hand, you could read this story and you could think, well, Jesus is critiquing their little faith, so there must, there must be some ex- expectation that he has of them. And I think that that is true. He, under, he wants them to understand that at this point in the journey, they've seen a lot of things that maybe other people haven't seen, and he wants them to embrace this in a way that's similar to the centurion who believed that Jesus could heal somebody from miles away. And we're pretty typically kind of tough on the disciples, but maybe acting like we wouldn't do the same thing if Jesus was asleep in the boat and we were caught up in the middle of the storm. But I know in my life I have struggled to trust Jesus with much smaller issues in my life than being caught up in a storm in the middle of a lake thinking that I was about to die. What about you? My family, my health, my future, my finances, my doubts, my fears. The disciples were not perfect, but they recognized that in the middle of the storm, he was capable of saving them. They went to the right place. They just didn't believe that it could happen. And what I want us to hear is the storm was still calmed. Jesus can work with a little bit of faith. And I want you to hear that this morning. I want you to receive that this morning. It may be that you came this morning full of faith on cloud nine. Everything is going great. And in your, if that's the situation you're in, praise God for that. But if you're at a place this morning where faith is hard, where you aren't seeing God show up, where you aren't seeing the answer that you're praying for, where you're struggling or you're doubting or you're confused or you're overwhelmed or you have questions, just know Just know that Jesus can do a lot with a little bit of faith. This storm did not overwhelm them. The sea became calm. And these two stories this morning about people coming to consider following Jesus and this story about the storm, I think are both stories about faith. And having enough faith to follow Jesus wherever he may lead and having enough faith to trust that that same Jesus that calmed the storm on that day can still deal with whatever you and I are going through today or any day in the future. Here's what we know. And this is a kind of a beautiful thing to think about. We know that the disciples' faith didn't stay little. Right? Over time, it continued to grow, which is, by the way, the same way that it happens with you and me. Jesus would eventually leave the kingdom, think about this, leave the kingdom in the hands of these people who didn't believe he could calm a storm. And he has continued to leave the kingdom into the hands of people like you and me who might still struggle to have great faith on some days. And that's good news that he trusts you and me enough to continue to be his people in the world even on the day where we don't feel like the centurion soldier. Even when we feel a little more like the disciples who are saying, Lord, I'm drowning here. Can you please rescue me? The same group of disciples in a couple of years will change the world, literally change the world. And so today your faith might feel little. And what I want you to hear is if that is where you are, Jesus can work with that. That's in fact all he's ever done 
in history is worked with people who have whatever amount of faith that they have to offer. Will you stand with me this morning as we pray? Father, we thank you that you are a God that continues to use us as your people. You invite us into relationship with you and you call us out into the world to live as your sons and daughters. Not perfectly, maybe struggling at times, but each step, Father, knowing that you're ahead of us, that you're leading us, that you're guiding us. And I pray this morning that wherever we might be as individuals, as people today, that you'll draw near to us, that you'll help us sit with this question and consider this question of, are we all in or are we still kind of keeping one foot out in our pursuit of you and in our willingness to surrender fully to you? Are there things that are more important to us than our pursuit and surrendering to you? And also, Father, maybe we evaluate just our faith and our journey with faith and not to beat ourselves up or be overly hard on ourselves, but to just wrestle with the question of the journey that we're on and thinking about the faith that we have. Father, we are grateful that you are a God that continues to use people who have struggles and doubts and questions, who don't have great faith every single day. And we pray that you'll continue to use us, Father, in whatever way you can as your people in this place, people that you've entrusted the kingdom to in this place so that we can live in the way that you want us to live. We thank you, Father, for all that you've done uh, and all that you're going to do. And we pray in the name of Christ. And the church said, amen. Let's sing this song together.